Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Jessica Bissett, and I'm the Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Today's interview is about the state of EU-China relations following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the recent EU-China summit. What does the future hold for the Sino-European relationship, and what are the implications for U.S.-China relations? Today, we have two great speakers and experts to address these questions. I'm thrilled to introduce today's speaker, Ivana Karaskova, and our moderator, Matt Virchin. Dr. Karaskova is a founder and project leader of Map Influence, an international project mapping China's influence in Central Europe and of China observers in Central and Eastern Europe, a platform gathering China researchers to analyze Beijing's 17 plus one format and the Belt and Road Initiative. Ivana is also a research fellow at the Association for International Affairs, a Prague-based foreign policy think tank and the European China Policy Fellow at the Mercator Institute for China Studies. She joins us today from Prague. Now on to our moderator. Dr. Furchin is a lecturer at the Leiden University Institute of Area Studies and a senior fellow at the Leiden Asia Center. His current research focuses on China's economic statecraft and economic power, including its ties with the United States, Europe, and Southeast Asia. In addition, we are fortunate that Matt is a fellow of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program. He joins us from the Netherlands. Now let's get to our discussion. Over to you, Matt. Great. Thanks so much, Jess and Ivana. It's great to be here with you. Let me just jump right in and begin uh, by asking if you could please characterize the state of EU-China relations before Russia invaded Ukraine, and in particular, if you could say a few things about where the relationship had stood, especially with the EU's official formulation designating China as, quote, a negotiation partner, an economic competitor, and a systemic rival, end quote. Hello, Matt. Hello, Jess. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, well, you asked how I would characterize EU-China relations. Well, not great. <laughs> it has been a gradually deteriorating. So once the spoiler is out, I think I should put it into context to explain what I meant by the relationship being not in a great shape. Well, basically, since 2013, since we had the EU-China Strategic Agenda for, co for Cooperation, we started to look more into detail into EU-China relations and the, the trajectory. And if you do remember of those a decade ago, uh, that document was full of very positive language. It talked about the enhanced coordination on strategic political security issues, multilateralism, exchanges on human rights issues, maritime and security, the need to finalize the comprehensive agreement on investment, cooperation on climate change. Basically, in essence, the words dialogue and cooperation were the keywords frequently mentioned in the document. But around 2016-2017, that tone started to change in connection to the frustration the European companies felt while operating on Chinese market and also in connection to security considerations. 
So in 2016, already the EU felt the need to publish another document updating the previous one called Elements uh, for a New EU Strategy on China. And that document is less positive on China already. It called for more reciprocity, greater China's responsibilities in international arena. It also cited concerns over China's global ambitions, including the impact of the so-called 16 plus one format, the format of cooperation between China and Central and Eastern European countries. So there were already concerns over the cohesion of the EU and China's global ambitions. Soon after the release of the new document, the whole process of initiation of EU investment screening mechanism started. So the EU started to look at Chinese investment with a suspicion as well. So it has a lot of different facets in different, different areas. And then in 2019, the document you mentioned, the, the EU-China strategic outlook basically came out with uh, designating China in three different um, areas as systemic rival, economic competitor, and cooperation partner. And that's the beginning of the, let's say, multifaceted EU approach towards China. It's quite a useful format because it enables EU to work with China on different areas, in some of the areas to be, let's say, less accommodative, on the other areas being more assertive, and so on. So it is quite useful. And basically, since that 2019, the whole process of the deterioration accelerated. First with the Xinjiang human rights abuses, which were made public, then China adopted the extradition law, then a new security law in Hong Kong, then it adopted the dual circulation policy. In the same time, it adopted the changes in its political system, which effectively get rid of however weak they have been at the very beginning, checks and balances, and opened a way for Xi Jinping to basically stay in power uh, at infinitum. Then add coronavirus to the whole mixture uh, with the new impetus and Chinese direct messaging on EU showing and claiming that Chinese political system is much more advanced than democratic political system and it comes with advantages for dealing with international crises. And last but not least, we should put also to the picture the, the mutual sanctions which were adopted uh, in 2021 last year and definitely didn't help the situation and led to the freezing on, uh, of the Treaty on Investment and economic sanctions on Lithuania. So it was, a, you know, in a nutshell, I would argue that EU's position on China before the Russian invasion was already shifting gradually towards being more skeptical um, on economic opportunities presented on the Chinese internal market more concerned regarding China's domestic policies and growing international ambitions, including how they manifest in EU and its neighborhood. But the EU is a homogeneous you know, unit. It's 27 national states, different perspectives, different priorities. And also the EU, uh, which we have a tendency to look as, a, as a, some kind of grouping as a whole, is not singing from the same part. So you have more EU skeptic, uh, sorry, China skeptic European Parliament, less China skeptic European Commission, especially on trade issues, wanting to cooperate with China as, as the business as usual and so on. So basically to sum it up, um, I'm not surprised by the current trajectory of EU-China relations because we have been seeing that trajectory starting already a decade ago. So this is just a recent manifestation. 
Great. Thanks for that very comprehensive overview. And I, I imagine a lot of the, the listeners who are more familiar maybe with the um, broad deterioration in the U.S.-China relationship will see some similarities, but also, also some, some differences. And maybe we can get into that um, a, a little bit later. And I, I think it's interesting the way that you, that you characterize this sort of tripartite uh, formulation of partner, competitor, and, and systemic rival as having been sort of useful. Um, and I think that leads us into um, the more uh, current and recent developments as, as it relates to um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that's changed the, the relationship um, and whether or not that, that formulation continues um, to be as, as useful. Um, so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how the dynamics in the relationship have changed since Russia's in, invasion of Ukraine. And specifically, maybe if you can and include in those comments, your readout about the dynamics of the recent virtual EU-China summit held um, at the beginning of April. Well, I think that uh, High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security, uh, Borel, summed this very nicely when he talked about the dialogue of the death. Um, it was basically two parties targeting each other, um, their own audiences actually, not speaking, speaking to each other. But if I may say so as European, I was once again probably not surprised by the outcome of the summit. First of all, there were different priorities attached to the topics discussed by, the each, by each side. EU made the whole summit revolving around the Sino-Russian alliance and Russian war in Ukraine. And that was definitely not in interest of China to debate. And the other set of topics which um, revolved around comprehensive agreement on investment, uh, health cooperation, human rights, and so on. These were the areas where more of China's interests and which also promise at least some space for the progress. Because if you do remember a human rights dialogue, which um, for years the EU, um, the EU had with uh, China and which was initiated because uh, European Union specifically criticized China in the UN um, Human Rights Council every year and China wanted to get rid of that. So it nodded, it agreed on having, holding the human rights dialogue with the EU. So this dialogue was postponed, was uh, basically put into the freezer by the Chinese side. So the EU simply manifested, simply signaled to China that it wants to still hold the dialogue with the Chinese side, but the ball is on Chinese side. China has to decide whether to restart the dialogue. So that was one issue. Um, the second one was comprehensive agreement on investment. We both know that it's currently in the freezer, that it's probably not going to be to be ratified anytime soon, but we can debate, we can debate it. And it's in the freezer because of the mutual sanctions which were imposed last year. Um, so until the sanctions are lifted, um, probably there's not going to be any progress on, on the comprehensive agreement on investment. But China quite interestingly yesterday um, signaled that it's willing to ratify the ICCPR, International Covenant on uh, Political and, and Civil Rights. So that may be a signal from the Chinese side, once again, willingness to open the negotiation process with uh, Europeans. The last issue which was debated on the list, apart from, from Ukraine, of course, was the climate change. Um, the, was very limited space for any progress done very soon, so soon after the Glasgow meeting last year. 
So to my reading of the whole situation was that EU was really interested only, or the European uh, Commission and the rest of uh, the party was really interested only in debating um, China's support of Russian claims regarding NATO and getting uh, China on board with its own view of the, of the aggression. While for China, this was basically just um, a talking shop for on, on the Ukrainian issue, it was not in its agenda, in its interest to debate it. And so it focused on the last three uh, points, which I, um, which I um, alluded to. Great, thank you again. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the way in which the, the EU really pressed for this focus uh, on the Russia-Ukraine issue and on China's role in supporting Russia in, in this crisis, um, whether or not you see any potential risks in the sort of way in which the, the Russia-Ukraine relationship has really become a focal point and a lens through which the broader Europe and China relationship is, is going to develop. Is this the, the sort of appropriate way you think um, for the EU or member states to be sort of viewing the China relationship going forward? Or do you, th do you see any risks related to that? It's mm, a great question. So maybe I would start by saying that it didn't start with the invasion itself. It actually started with the joint communique between Xi Jinping and Putin uh, from February 4th on the fringes of um, Beijing Olympics and Be in um, Olympic Games in, in Beijing. So it, it basically precedes the, the invasion itself. And the most problematic part here, and it's problematic specifically for 12 EU member states located in Central and Eastern Europe, is the position of China on Russian demands, not necessarily on the invasion itself, but on Russian demands when it comes to NATO, because uh, from December, Putin, um, Putin's demand basically were that the situation has to revert towards the situation pre-1997. So in an essence, Central and Eastern European countries who are NATO members translated this message as the fact that they would not be covered by the, by the security guarantees provided by NATO and by extension by the United States. And that's the key focal point. That's the, that's the changing point. So whether China you know, walked into that with eyes fully opened, I'm not quite sure whether they basically calculated that this would have such a huge effect because it's not an artificial link between Russia and China. It is actually China backing Russia on matters which are seen by a number of EU member states as the matters of survival. So that's elevated it, this issue to, to, that, to that position. And secondly, speaking analytically, about there are clear similarities between both regimes in Russia and China. Both countries are governed by a small and quite rigid circle of policymakers. Both prefer rule of law, rule by law, sorry, instead of rule of law. Both share some grudge against the current international system. And both elites are afraid of regime change. So analytically speaking, in essence, we are talking about two quite similar actors in international arena. So I would perhaps oppose this point of view that linking China somehow to Russia is an artificial construct. There are clear similarities and they are reasons why this has been, has been done. 
And in general, what are the risks from dealing with authoritarian regimes or states in general? Well, especially in economic front, there are definitely vulnerabilities because both regimes we are talking about are seeing economic relations interconnected with state interests and state interest or state has an upper hand in dealing with economic relations. So the vulnerability lies in dependency and and the willingness of the other side to actually use all sorts of coercion, being it political coercion, economic coercion, and even make security threats towards um, towards Europeans. Yeah, and I think this is going to be one of the, the big challenges for policymakers. Um, you know, politicians are going to approach this in a certain way, policymakers and analysts in, in a different way. Obviously, there are similarities, but also lots of differences, and it sort of matters a great deal, um, you know, the, how you sort of parse those and what's going to be in broader EU or US interests um, related to, to both both countries. Um, I think something that you get at here that um, you, I think, can um, really shed even more light on, you, know, you already mentioned it, sort of um, Central and Eastern European countries and their views on some of these specific issues. And I wonder if you could talk about a couple of things, I mean, you can choose which one you're you, you want to emphasize, but um, we've had recent uh, elections in, in Hungary, and Hungary has obviously been a key and uh, controversial figure in its relationship with, with China, but also with, within the EU, recent elections there, and if, what, how you see the election results there affecting um, Hungary-China relations or this sort of Hungary Russia, China dynamic. Um, and then the other one, and maybe you choose to focus on this instead, would be events in, in Lithuania um, in terms of the broader deterioration in the relationship between Lithuania and, and China uh, and, and how that's affecting the, the entire sort of Central and Eastern European relationship with, uh, with China. So maybe take your pick. Well, I will try to accommodate all three questions, somehow interlink them uh, in my mind. So I will start with a broader picture, perhaps, because there is clear divide between Central and Eastern Europe and Western Europe when it comes to China. And it has been when it comes to Russia as well. And it has been visible and observable for a number of years. It didn't start with the inception of the 16 plus one format. I think it just made things much more visible uh, to, to Europeans that there is this clear divide in positioning and in thinking about international relations. So for Central and Eastern Europeans looking east, and here then we will come to the exceptions and to Hungary, looking east was not a political choice. It was not, um, they didn't do it for some kind of hidden admiration for Putin's regime or for Xi Jinping's regime. It was motivated by the hard-nosed expectation, economic expectations of either Russia or China or other countries actually in the East investing in Central and Eastern European countries. So that was the key motivation for entering into 16 plus one format. China came with offers which were um, probably laughable even or bizarre if, if you wish, and came with framing which was pretty strange to Central and Eastern Europeans as well, because it described the cooperation as South to South cooperation, implying that countries in Central and Eastern Europe are developing countries. So there was a lot of weird and quite, um, quite strange proposals or framing from the very beginning, but the countries accepted it because of those economic benefits. 
When those economic benefits didn't materialize, they started to have second thoughts. But when we look at, and you're economist, when we look at the economic dependency when it comes to China, well, I wouldn't basically put Central and Eastern European countries to the category, as they were sometimes called, the Trojan horses or Trojan horse um, inside the EU. I do feel that there are many more other countries which are more dependent and more willing to, um, let's say, spin their foreign policy when it comes uh, to China. Um, but maybe also in Russia, we can, we can debate that as well. And when it comes to the exceptions, Hungary is one of the key exceptions and from this rule, which I very generally uh, described in Central and Eastern Europe, it attracted some investment for sure. Um, it also helped China, but also Russia a couple of times um, in the negotiations in the European Council when it veto vetoed some of the joint positions of the EU. But once again, the the position of Hungary was mostly motivated economically for its Orban's own reasons. And only recently it started to be also motivated by the, um, let's say, uh, attractiveness of either Russian or Chinese model. But economically speaking, still the EU is the biggest provider uh, of, the, of the funds to Hungary. Um, when it comes to the election, well, apart from some of the statements of Viktor Orban, which were uh, obviously motivated by his, um, you know, happiness regarding the, the election results, I don't think that there is going to be much of the change. His main supporters um, in Poland decided to um, back off or um, not to support Orban because of his stance on the war in Ukraine. Um, so he is mostly isolated. He will continue in his policy towards Moscow, towards, uh, towards uh, Beijing, but it would be very awkward within the EU setting. Um, and he may not afford to veto more of the resolutions when it comes to, to that. As for Lithuania, Lithuania had a long-standing concerns um, over the profitability of economic cooperation with China. And with the new government, which already, when they were in opposition, already signaled that they would like to shift their foreign policy to be more based on values than uh, the previous governments, it was quite obvious that uh, it would change its foreign policy regarding not only China, but also Russia and Belarus. So it is, once again, a whole package of reactions and rela relations which are directed by this divide between democracies slash authoritarian regimes. Lithuania left 16 plus one format, but um, oh, it downgraded, decided not to participate in 16 plus one format. Most likely this is not going to inspire other countries to do that. Um, I think that 16 plus one format is mostly that, um, that it will not be revived. The, the Chinese side, to my knowledge, complained that nobody is willing to host the summit this year in Europe, and it's this, the 10th anniversary of inception of the summit, which says a lot, I think. So Lithuania left 16 plus one, then uh, they allowed Taiwan to open the representative office under the name of Taiwanese representative office, and since then they have been facing economic coercion from the Chinese side, uh, lots of uh, smaller or bigger bullying on that front when it comes to Lithuanian goods not being accepted to the Chinese market or even threatening uh, with secondary sanctions the companies which uh, provide components for Lithuanian products which then enter to, 
to the Chinese market. So this is the path which had some sympathies or has some sympathies within Central and Eastern European countries. And moreover, Lithuania get a lot at a higher credit by its position towards Russia and Belarus and by its support of Ukraine in the current war. So my gut feeling, which I can't somehow based on anything I would see materializing yet, is that there is a high likelihood of a spillover of reactions in um, connection to Russia towards reaction in connection to China. There is already this mental link between Russia and China being made. Um, so that would lead to tougher stances coming from Central and Eastern European countries. How powerful those stances would be, how big a, an ability to create uh, coalitions within the EU, that's questionable, of course. Um, but my instinct tells me that there is going to be more hawkish position of Central and Eastern European countries. In an essence, it's a paradox or an irony that countries which were described as those who are willing to, to sleep in the same bed as, as Beijing, who are willing to be part of 16 plus one format and so on, would probably be more hawkish than the Western part of the European Union on China's policy as well as on Russian policy. That's great. I think, uh, I mean, I think a lot of this is based on sort of some outside observers' poor understanding of that relationship in the first place. I think people like you and, and other careful observers from, from the region had been commenting on some of these trends for, for quite some time. Um, and it, it's great to have, an, have a, an insight and more detailed view of how some of this is evolving. I think it's quite fascinating to see how some of the former socialist countries from the region have sort of, you know, different sensitivities to many of these issues, whether it's related to, to Russia or, or to China. I wonder if we could conclude by talking about um, the, the, the broader big picture relationship in terms of transatlantic coordination or not in terms of China policy, the extent to which the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has sort of changed calculations about that, some of what you've just discussed, maybe this more hawkish attitude among some countries in Central and Eastern Europe, or, or just more generally where you think the EU is likely to head in terms of its openness or, or not to sort of coordinating uh, with the United States on, on, the, on the broader China relationship and or the sort of aligning the, the two sides Indo-Pacific policies, which obviously include some key element of, of China policy. Hmm. Well, if I may still use Central and Eastern European countries as a segue to what you what you ask. Um, well, they are undergoing, let's say, their own rite of passage. Um, they used to be passive acceptors of uh, whatever policies were coming from, from Brussels, as we call it here, the big entity Brussels. Um, but they mo most likely will be more, more active, less passive, more hawkish and so on. And that plays very well into the hands of other international actors, namely the United States, which, who already, or which already did this link between Russia and China and started to talk about two theaters instead of, um, instead of, of just focusing on Russia itself. So I think that's what would very much likely happen this year is that NATO's focus um, when it meets in, in Spain this year, NATO's focus would be enlarged by 
China as well. There is definitely going to be an opposition and debate on that, but um, there is more of an interest and a momentum that it used to be years ago and even months ago. So this probably is likely, at least in my view, to happen. And um, also what logically follows is that um, there may be some kind of division of labor between EU um, looking more um, to its neighborhood and, and the US looking once again more to its neighborhood in Indo-Pacific. Um, the problematic part here is of course Taiwan because uh, the US have a tendency, at least the, the, the uh, stakeholders I spoke to had a tendency to look at Taiwan similarly as Ukraine. Taiwan will never create such an emotional reaction in Europe as Ukraine did. So I don't, don't see, analytical speaking, don't be, see similarities in these two scenarios um, happening. So for the US, focus on Taiwan and Indo-Pacific makes more sense than for European Union focusing on the same, uh, same area. Um, so most likely what I would probably um, you know, <laughs> forecast, if I may, is the, the division of, of labor. Saying that, that would not come for free. That would actually mean that Europeans would have to invest more into their own security. And it would be demanded from uh, Europe as well as it, as it has in its own interest to also venture into an Indo-Pacific. Great. Well, I think this whole question of the future of the not very old um, EU Indo-Pacific strategy um, uh, is is just been thrown into even deeper sense of, of sort of um, question after the the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine in, in the sense that you know I think the EU had been trying to turn its attention to all of the potential benefits of a greater focus on on the Indo-Pacific, um, the opportunities there of probably trying to mitigate tensions between the U.S. and 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 China in in the region and and now I, my own sense is that that's a little bit on the back burner, as, as you mentioned. So uh, thanks so much uh, for this discussion. It's been great. We've covered a, a lot of ground um, and I will hand things back to Jess. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much, Ivana and Matt for sharing your thoughts and speaking with us today. And thank you to my NCUSCR colleagues who helped put this interview together. We hope that those who have tuned in found the interview interesting and informative and that you will join us for future National Committee programming. Thanks so much and have a great day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.